Warning! The following contains spoilers pertaining to the show and subject matter discussed. Also, strong language and adult content may be included. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you. I love breakfast. It is absolutely the best meal. When it's done right, it really is fantastic. And that's why I love coming here to the Viand Cafe. They do diner food right. Takes me back to the good old days. Okay, Johnny Time Travel. Settle down. One, you aren't that old. Two, you weren't around for the good old days. I know, but it just has that nostalgic feeling. I wish we could have seen the diner at the height of its day, along with the automat. Those seemed amazing. I see the show last night had a lasting impact on you. That's not the only thing I took away from it, but think about how amazing it would be to get out of a Broadway show and just swing by an automat for a quick sandwich or a piece of pie or even a hot cup of coffee. I'm just saying, it might be time for the return of the automat. I'm not sure how Grubhub and Seamless are going to feel about that, but uh, in the meantime, I'm going to keep coming here. It's fair. And this is fantastic, so I'll keep coming with you. Stage Whisper. I'm your host, Hope Bird, and with me is my co-host, Andrew Cortez. Today we are going to be discussing the remarkable show, The Nance. So hurry and take your seats. It looks like the show is starting. Hi ho, everyone, and welcome in today's performance of Stage Whisper. We'll meet you around the corner in a half an hour, and there we'll tell you all about our landmark show, The Nance. This hilarious and heartfelt show told an incredible story that, for many, was little known, but just the same, incredibly powerful and poignant. But before we can get to the tomfoolery, we have to first set the stage with our groundwork. There isn't a whole lot of background on this show, but... Here is what is available. The Nance is a play that involves the lives of burlesque performers during the 1930s. A Nance was a camp stock character in vaudeville and burlesque. The show was produced and put on by Lincoln Center Theater, which makes now the perfect time to introduce our design team. The playwright was Douglas Carter Bean, director Jack O'Brien, choreography by Joey Peasy, Set design by John Lee Beatty, costume design by Ann Roth, lighting design by Japerly Weidman, sound design Leon Rothenberg, original music Glenn Kelly, hair and wig design David Brian Brown, makeup Alan Wessinger. The show would arrive at the Lyceum Theater for a limited engagement on April 15, 2013. It would be extended and play 136 performances and close on August 11th, 2013. 
The play was taped live in August 2013 for PBS series Live from Lincoln Center. Before the play's broadcast, it was screened in movie theaters beginning June 23rd, 2014. The play was broadcast October 10th, 2014, and was made available to view on their website immediately after the broadcast. That season, the show would be nominated for five Tony Awards and chuckle away with three. Best Scenic Design of a Play for John Lee Beatty, Best Sound Design of a Play, Leon Rothenberg, and Best Costume Design of a Play, Anne Roth. So, with that, let's head back in time to a time when stage was full of a different sort of character. between the scenes of the characters' real lives and sketches played at the Irving Place Theater, which serve as a comment on the play itself. The play opens at an automat in Greenwich Village in 1937 where gay men congregate and arrange meetings. Chauncey Miles is a star at the Irving Place Theater, a burlesque house in New York City. He specializes in playing the Nance, a stock character who was a flamingly effeminate homosexual. In fact, Chauncey is gay and looks for men at the automat, but he must be careful or risk being arrested. There he meets Ned, newly arrived in New York and homeless. Chauncey invites him to his apartment for a sexual encounter, assuming him to be a curious heterosexual. In the morning, however, Ned confesses that he is also gay and has recently left his wife hoping to find out more about himself. Though Chauncey is hesitant, to begin a serious relationship, they become lovers. At this time, Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia is attempting to end burlesque in New York. During this period, the gay population was also often persecuted. Ephraim, the manager and top comic of the Irving Place Theater, warns Chauncey that the knowledge of his sexuality is attracting gay men to the theater, a fact of which the police may become aware. However, Chauncey, a passionate Republican supporter of LaGuardia, believes that the attacks on burlesque and gays will stop after the election. When another one of the performers suddenly quits the Irving Place to work elsewhere, Chauncey brings Ned on as a last-minute replacement. In spite of an awkward beginning, Chauncey guides him through the sketch, and Ned is given a job at the theater as a stooge in Chauncey's sketches. Ned and Chauncey's relationship becomes known as and accepted by Ephraim and the theater strippers who become part of their regular circle of friends. Before one performance, word reaches the troupe that the commissioner of licenses, Paul Moss, is in the audience with a number of policemen. Ephraim tells Chauncey not to play the Nance character for fear of a police raid. However, unable to think of other dialogue, Chauncey plays his trademark character, kisses Ephraim on stage, and the theater is raided. Act two begins with Chauncey in court. He defends burlesque and free expression, but serves two nights in jail. On being released, he is embarrassed to find the other members of his company are treating him as a hero. Under the new restrictions on burlesque, Chauncey is limited to performing one Nance sketch played in drag, which he finds demeaning. 
The jokes in his routines turn increasingly derogatory. The other members of the company urged Chauncey to participate in a planned walkout by all entertainment unions in the city. The conservative Chauncey is reluctant to join. Eventually, the walkout is canceled when the unions agree to LaGuardia's restrictions. Chauncey's relationship with Ned begins to suffer as he starts resorting to anonymous sexual encounters in parks. He starts turning away from Ned, who is now more open about his own sexuality. Ned asks Chauncey to be monogamous for him, and Chauncey initially agrees. Several weeks later, however, Ned finds Chauncey again at the automat looking for one-night stands. Chauncey rejects Ned, telling him that he has lost interest in him and that he prefers to be used and discarded. Ned, sensing the imminent shutdown of burlesque, tells Chauncey he has taken a job as an ensemble member in a tour of Red Hot and Blue and asks Chauncey to join him as a last try at a monogamous relationship. Chauncey insists the crackdown on burlesque is temporary and that he will stay where he is. Confessing his self-hatred, he rejects the offer of a monogamous relationship, telling Ned, this is not what I should be having. He kisses Ned goodbye but is ironically seen by policemen who arrest him for deviant behavior in public after Ned has left. Finally, Chauncey appears on stage in complete drag, playing an old prostitute. In the middle of the sketch, his loss hits him and he breaks down, alternating between grief and professional composure. Shortly after, the Irving Place Theater is closed down. Ephraim and the girls leave to perform out of state, it is revealed that Chauncey, as a repeat offender and banned from leaving New York, was offered leniency if he named the other party, but he refused to do so. The other company members sadly tell him goodbye. Chauncey stands alone on the stage of the early Irving Place. As he sings softly a verse of his trademark song, a piece of ceiling falls down, narrowly missing him, and Chauncey remains center stage under a broken spotlight as the curtain falls. The, the end. end. So why don't we discuss the parts of the show that we like and the other parts that we like. Right. I mean, I loved this show. I love this show. It was very well done. I got sucked into the story. I got sucked into the story even now just retelling it. Yeah, it kind of just took me there. And one of my favorite things was that it was at the uh, Lyceum. Lyceum Theater. And so it honestly felt like I was back in time. It felt like I was in, you know, 39 as this was really happening. I thought it was a beautiful and heartbreaking story, but also it was an important story because it's, it's based on true events, based on a real person. Yeah, um, well, and in New York during this time had a lot of obscenity laws. Yes, and I did not know about these laws that were in place. Naive little me was like, wait, this is a thing? These, these temperance laws were, were a thing? How could this stuff be barred? You know, but I mean, then again, we had the, what was it, the 18th Amendment? About prohibition, mm -hmm. yeah. To think we actually had that. 
Um, I thought it was brilliantly performed. I loved every minute of it. Just beautifully balanced between the real, a real-life drama, real-life off-stage drama, and this hilarity on stage. Right. Well, and I am a huge lover of vaudeville. And so to be able to see not only a vaudeville show, but then also what's happening behind it was just, it was a treat. Yes. So why don't we go ahead and break it down? And let's start with our say it. Oh my gosh, I love the way that they did um, Chauncey's apartment. It was so tiny, it felt like a tenement. But it was so detailed. Yeah, it was so detailed. I mean, the fact that the tub was underneath the kitchen table. Yes. That, to me, I was like, oh my god. Things that were, like, filled up in the wall and everything. It yeah, was the Murphy so, bed. Yeah. The... But here's the thing. this These were clearly Lincoln Center Theater sets. They always have these grand, huge sets, even when the place is small. And this was no exception. Backstage area at the Irving Place Theater, like, it was huge, but it probably in real life isn't huge. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like that, I mean, you work at a Broadway theater. Backstage is not that big. No. You know, even if it does have, like, the fire escape. No, it's not that big, but it was huge. You know, the mm-hmm. automat was enormous, but it was so detailed that... It was beautiful. It was so gorgeous. Uh, so for those of you who don't know what an automat is, um, it's oh, kind of like... Can I, can I tell this? Because okay. that was on my exam. Yes, an, please. An automat is somewhere where you would go. Nickel slingers would be there. You could get change for your, for your bills if you needed it. And you'd insert... It's like a vending machine. And you'd insert your nickels. And you'd open the little window and you could pull out a sandwich or a piece of pie or what have you. And then they would have hot coffee and some fancy ones would like have it coming out of a dolphin's mouth, like a water fountain kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was basically like a cafe, self-serve vending machine cafeteria. Yeah. And so there were people who were there in the back making food and they would just restock it. So it wasn't like someone was coming like with a cart full of stuff and sticking it in and restocking. No, it was like a restaurant but you just got it out of the case yourself and it was individually and the plates were there and you left the plates. Which is why I'm like, bring back the automat. Um, <laughs> but it was so beautifully detailed. Um, God, I can't get over it. It was perfect for setting the mood and for showing how dirty and dingy these performance spaces were too. Well, um, and how performers lived like in squalor. Well, yeah. And I mean, the thing is, is like it... It, it was clean, but it was dirty. Mm-hmm. If that makes any sense. You know, you, you could feel just that layer of grime that exists here in the city. Yes. Everywhere. But then you're just also like, eh, but I, I run the trash out without shoes on. Because, you know, I'm not afraid of the grime. I'm afraid of the glass, but I'm not afraid of the grime. You know what I mean? Like, it's... <laughs> right. It's New York. Yeah. Um, and it, all of the sets, they just, they had the feeling of and they communicated nostalgia. They yes. really, and, and like you said, that plus the theater, it really just took you back. I don't think that the show would have, honestly, the same impact if it was in a more modern feeling theater. Yeah, definitely. I think it played in, like, it played into the fact that you were at this theater. Because the, um, the Lyceum, to get to the balcony, you have to hike these, the stairwell. And the stairwell is, like, classic... New York in the 30s. You have like, to climb 15 flights of stairs and that wrap around. And there's paint on the railings. Like, that's something that people who aren't from New York 
don't necessarily understand. Yeah, they don't it, buff. They paint the, the, the stairs, the metal stairs, and the railings the same color. And when it starts to chip or whatever, they just paint over it. They yeah. They don't, like, buff it, but like, and oh! And so there are layers upon layers of paint on these because it was kind of the cheap seats, so it wasn't as glamorous as it was downstairs. Oh, yeah. So And they it, are the cheap seats. Yeah, and so, like, you walk through this one door, and they go, okay, now go up these stairs to get to the balcony and it's like this separate entrance that's like the servants quarters almost you know for the play and um you know it definitely like it goes back to some really dark things in our history and then also the bathroom up in the balcony is this tiny hole in the wall bathroom but at least they have it up there it's true um i would love to see what a show is like from the orchestra um and I don't even know if it has a mezzanine. Um, just because I'd like to know if it feels different. Oh, uh, oh the Lyceum has a mezzanine. Okay, so, you know, it, being in the balcony, it definitely made you feel like you were in the poor seats. And I loved that feeling because the story was kind of about, well, I'm doing the dance for the, the, the gays in the balcony. That's who he was doing it for. And so it just kind of hit really nicely. Yeah, well put. Well, let's go back to our breaking down thing, and, and let's dive into the costumes. Break it down. The breaking down, uh, which I thought the costumes were incredible. The oh, showgirl yeah. costumes were amazing. The burlesque dancers, especially, um, mm-hmm. the beautiful form-fitting gowns, and I say form-fitting where they covered just enough to keep those sensors out the door. Well, yeah, because they had they every time they would come out with a costume or try to make themselves unique. They'd pass another obscenity law that said you couldn't show your elbow, and so they had to adjust their costume. Well, they were also very tongue-in-cheek, so if the law came out that said you couldn't show your elbow, they would, okay, wrap their elbow. And And they'd leave the forearm and the shoulder exposed, but but I'm not showing my elbow. Because it didn't say the garment had to come down to the elbow. It just said you couldn't show your elbow. Mm-hmm. You know, so the, these these were so these were such smart performers. I loved the balloon scene, classic balloon scene where they were mm-hmm. popping the balloon. Just it's it's just to tease and tantalize. It is not filth. It is not pornography or anything like that. It is it really. It is, is the art. art of tease. Yeah, and the to to develop those costumes was amazing. Uh, I love the Nance's different costumes and how they were exaggerated. They were always, like, too big for him. Um, just silly and floppy. I mean, one of the ones that stands out to me is the cowboy one. Yes. That was just way too big, but then it had all the frills and the sparkles, and he just walks out with this giant hat and, ho-hi, you know? And, and it was really playing on the effeminate gay man, but they couldn't say that. They didn't have a word for it, and so they were a Nance. You know, it was embracing that I am effeminate. I am fi- You're feminine. You're an antsy boy. Exactly. And it was it was taking what was an insult and wearing it as a badge of honor. Right. But, it, I mean, there's a dual thing here. It's, it's Because also that makes you a target. At that time, if you were to be made fun of, you were also accepted. That's why I made fun of the Irish, of the Jews, of the immigrants, mm-hmm. and all that. As long as we were making fun, if we were all laughing, then you're also part of this community. But it would only go that that would only be allowed so far. But the fact that they were doing the satirization of this character 
but not so overwhelmingly that it was such a cartoon was perfect yes and the other thing i don't know if our listeners remember that during this time it was like you could be arrested and put in jail for being gay yeah this is this is before i mean even when they relaxed it i say relaxed it then the law became the whole like you had to have a certain number of garments for your gender on at all times if you were found without a certain number of garments on you'd be arrested yeah so I mean that that's a relaxed law. This is just if you were perceived to be gay, a deviant, you go to jail. So Right. But, Let that, alone well, caught in the act. But things, yeah, but, well and we could go into the history, but, but back I back to the costumes. So yeah, so I love that it was his costumes were exaggerated. I love the show that that the show's scenes incorporated more colors, particularly with the reds and the pinks. Mm-hmm. And I, I love that um because um uh, com- uh, conflict and passion and love, mm-hmm. which were three of the main um, themes, I think, with the show, were really well communicated. So that that in their in those color palettes were, in my opinion, just communicated well. Well, and what's funny is in in the show in the vaudeville show happening at the Irving Place. They were, you know, especially the men were in drag. They were in costume. And when we say drag, we don't necessarily mean, like, dressed as females. They were dressed in an iconic character look. They had, you know, a certain... The flower and the lapel. And and the the frills. And the the tuxedo and all that. But then, for Chauncey, when he was his everyday person, he he was putting on... He suit or something. Yeah, he was putting on... He was still putting on a face. He was putting on this staunch Republican And it's important to note that a Republican is not the same as a Republican now. Yes. Yes. So he just... Basically, he was a conservative, and he was a proud conservative. And conservative was not about morality. Conservative was about the way money was spent for the government. Yes. Um, I... Yeah, and I, and I love the way the suits were cut, too, for those oh, yeah. outside looks. Ned and Chauncey. And even the way the girls' dresses were cut. They were so gorgeous. I lo- See, I love when the designer does their work, and then it comes out also in the construction of it. Here's the thing, though. This is Anne Roth. She didn't do the work or the research because she is the work and the research. She's been doing this. She well, made yeah, these you, looks you, iconic. You, you know what I mean? But <laughs> this is Anne Roth we're talking to, about. To be of the time, like, it's not... You don't see conflict among your design. There's, it's, it's all so consistent. You literally feel like you're transported back in time because everything just... It all speaks the same language. I have seen shows where bits and pieces all are from different time periods and it's like oh well I see what you're going for but actually no that would be a 50s piece and that's a 20s piece and that hair is from the 30s all of these elements were literally yeah I we can look at photos we are from there that time in 1939 that we find those looks yeah and that and but speaking of hair I did love the hair in the show um mm-hmm. I like how tight the hair was how you know because I, I could just see the ladies doing their hair in those tight buns kind of thing Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, or even, I wonder how they got the curls in at Look, that time. They were, uh, this was the era of pin curls and okay. finger waves. So okay. you'd wet set your own hair. So I thought that the hair was just really, really fantastic. 
Um, why don't we move on to lights, cameras, and actions. Mm-hmm. Um, lighting was fantastic. And like I mentioned before, the color palette. I loved um, that it brought in that red, those pinks, and whatnot. Um, it was warm, but it was also kind of grainy. The hazing, hazers again, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was like looking through an old lens to a different time. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that. Did not have the crisp, sharp edges to everything. Mm-hmm. They just there was softness. It was and like sepia toned, kinda. Yeah, and and antiquified. Antiquified. That's a ten dollar word for the, <laughs> the time we're recording. Um, the show scenes were clever, and I love that they incorporated, like I said, the, that color palette, because when we saw certain colors, when we saw that the teasing and the intimacy in that there was more pink present but when we did see conflict in that there was more red present when we saw Shauncey kind of doing things he maybe didn't agree with or or he shouldn't be doing there was more red present there's that conflict you know um, so I really really appreciated that um, and I liked that there was a lot of overhead lighting as if we were shining down and investigating mm-hmm. um you know, especially in the automat, especially backstage. It was a lot of overhead. When we were in his, in his apartment. Um, yeah, and, 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 and I know that seems like a weird thing. Like, well, did they not light from the front? No, they did light from the front, but there was more light coming from overhead, and it just gave that, given the subject matter and the story, that kind of feeling of we're investigating, we're looking into, we want to delve into this person's life and nose through some stuff and figure out the mm-hmm. why. You know, just a subtle thing, you know, just kind of look and pick up on. Which I guess would lead us now to our final box number five. Uh, direction. <laughs> box number Sorry, five. I had like mini stroke there. Um, I thought that, okay, look, again, this is another Lincoln Center production and i think lincoln center always just nails the crap out of their shows so mm-hmm. the of course the directing was amazing it was a near perfect show all the elements they were just clicking and they were working and it was just remarkable you really went on a journey in the show you know you got i learned a story i didn't know and the way in which it was communicated was fantastic the pacing the great balance it of was comedy and drama being able to have these moments of tension and conflict that were happening backstage, but then we had this great comic relief of a scene on stage at the Irving Place Theater. Like, that was really great. The show felt alive and breathing. Um, so I, I loved it. The, it. It was basic storytelling. It was real. It was natural. Just mm, so good. The show has had several notable performers, including Katie Huffman, Andrea Burns, and of course, Nathan Lane. I'm just a girl, a wonderful girl. I'm the sweetest one in town. You can search for miles around, and not one like me can be found. I've got a smile, a wonderful smile, and a certain little way. And every time the boys get near me, they look at me. So let's now talk about the impact the show's had on the theater and its history. Theatrical impact, theatrical impact. <laughs> um, okay, so I think it, the first thing that theatrically impacted it, the, yeah, okay, y'all know what I'm trying to say. 
um, it told a very important story that many people didn't know. And I am many people. I'm a large man, so I represent many people. Um, you know, I didn't know the story of Shanti. Can't think of his last name. But I believe, I mean, you took the queer theater class in college. I believe that this is a real person. Um, um, I don't know who who the real person was, but yes. And so I didn't know that this... Now, I, I know that it's like based on... I mean, it's not verbatim. And, oh, yes, you really had a, a an affair or a, a love affair with someone named Ned from, from Buffalo for Niagara Falls or wherever he was from. I don't know that that's all true, but there really was a, a vaudevillian character named Chauncey. And he played the Nance role. And this really, these obscenity laws and all that. Yeah, he did, he did contest them in court. and Yeah, this is all real. So I didn't know about all this and this story until I saw this show. See, and we saw this show before I took my queer theater class. Right. Um, but I had done a research project on um, obscenity laws. And because I, I was doing a research project on Mae West... Um, who she also had a lot, because she was a huge name in burlesque before she went to Tinseltown. And so she also did a lot to help um, try to break down these obscenity laws and point out how stupid they were and talk about, you know, queer relationships and how they're not what everyone's making them out to be. They're, it's not an issue of morality. Um, and these morality laws, that's what I was thinking of. Um, you know, and so um, to see a work like this where we basically were able to put it to paper, the stories that were happening behind the scenes during this time, um, because they, they weren't put down to paper. You couldn't write a love story like this during this time. Um, you couldn't write a, a piece of work that could talk about these issues like this. Um, and so those... The, piece, the works that they had to work with and the plays that they had during this time were very much uh, hidden in subtext. And so, you know, a lot of people may have known that these things have happened, but this is the first, like, this is when we start to see plays about this time telling the story. And there's something very important about having this information committed to text that is then produced and performed. Um, and it kind of solidifies it in history. That way, when we look back, we can't go, oh, well, that didn't happen. Because we bore witness, and then we retold that witness. Um, and I think that that's something that we don't talk enough about about theater, especially in where we're going in a modern time with um, plays that are about the past. So... I realize I just got up on a soapbox, so I'm just going to step Thank you for down. your TED Talk. <laughs> well, I mean, you highlighted my second point, which was elevating the LGBTQ rights and issues during the time of moral rights and temperance laws. So you did that. And the only other thing I'll add, just to recap your TED Talk, is it was this is another important LGBTQ work. Right, because here's the thing about queer history or queer theater or, I mean, queer lifestyle as a whole is it was illegal to commit it to paper, which means you couldn't write it in history um, because history is written by those who make the laws. History is written by those who, like they say in Wicked, win. And so for so long, 
before, you know, gay marriage was legalized and before we had everything, you know, that happened in the 80s, we weren't able to document the lives of LGBTQIA plus people throughout history. Um, and so the fact that we have a, a reimagined work of what it possibly could have been like just to helps to make that history actually not legit legit isn't the word i want but it, it makes it so that we have that written history so that we can start to pass it down through the years um as far as lgbtq plus is happening right now as far as history goes we are seeing this like renaissance of discovery of being able to find these things out but we've had to work really hard to get them and so the fact that we now have a committed history that we're working on just speaks volume to the um, legitimacy of of our existence you know and so um this play at least for me highlighted the importance of history especially queer history i'm on a soapbox today with this Clearly. show <laughs> so well, I think it's uh, safe to move on to societal impact. <laughs> and I think I, that... The, I'm I just going to kick your soapbox over Well, but I there. think the societal impact is a lot of what I just said. It, it made the public aware of issues facing the LGBTQ community then and now and how the community is still facing similar issues. And at the time when this play came out, I mean, one of the big issues that it was facing um, was something like bathroom bills. Yes. Again, yes. We, we mentioned this back in our Kinky Boots episode. I don't care what you're doing in the bathroom, what you're using to do in the bathroom. I just care that you wash your hands. Yep. We all know what we're doing in the bathroom. We all know how it all works. Just wash your hands. It, exactly. If you are looking at what other people are doing, you are the problem. Mm-hmm. And it just goes to show that like these kind of stupid laws happen and they happen, and they find a new they way to happen. Ignorance, fear, and 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 just well, ignorance and fear. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then it helped introduce a new generation to the art form of burlesque. I think so many younger theater goers did not or do not understand what burlesque is. They assume because burlesque has strippers, they immediately think of like these club scenes and movies with topless strippers. And, and I'm like, no, strippers literally meant like they stripped their clothes, but they did not get like, like naked, naked in front of the audience. Like you didn't show your birthday suit for everyone. It was about teasing. It was, it was an art form about uh, seduction and and the play of the performance the performer with the audience right and so this was less about the full monty and more about playfulness and innocence and whimsy. well not even i wouldn't say innocence because that's you can change that within the act it was more about the relationship between the performer and the audience and the journey that they could take them on right so let's ask the question is the show relevant yes yeah i say absolutely i think the show could have run for much longer than it originally did in my opinion and i think the story and the message that it shares is very important as issues that were faced in the play are continue to be faced in similar ways today 
And I also think there's always room on Broadway for such a well-written and powerful show as this. Um, the show is also perfect for regional theater as well. Um, I think it may be a little too much for collegiate. Um, and definitely a little too much for community theater. Yeah, I don't think that um, I don't think the collegiate has the life experience that you need to understand some of the depth of emotion. Right, and I don't think this is a good community production because of community theaters don't tend to do very deep work, like deep, heavy work. You know, mm-hmm. I, and I I can be wrong, um, but I think it it could easily make a Broadway return. I'd love Mm -hmm. to see a a revival of it. Finally, as promised, we wanted to share some of our own personal stories about experiencing the show. So we had the good fortune of getting to see the show once back in 2013. And as you could tell, or maybe you couldn't, we were absolutely amazed by the show. Floored. Fantastic. This is the show that made me realize how much I love the Lyceum Theater. And speaking of which, this is the first show that we saw at the Lyceum. Was it? I couldn't remember. I did the research. I was like, what shows have played at the Lyceum? And I was looking, and I'm like, nope, 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 nope. And the first show we saw was The The Nance. So this is your first, this is your introduction to the Lyceum. um, And Mm. it is a gorgeous theater. Um, I would not call it the most gorgeous theater. It's gorgeous in a different way. It's not like breathtaking. It needs to be for duster, though. Yeah, it's nostalgic. (laughs) I want to take a Swiffer duster to those Apple yes. things on the top above the boxes. <laughs> and I literally, I remember when we went to a strange loop, I was like, we have been closed for 18 months and no one thought to come in. And clean and the dust, dust off? off? Really? <laughs> <laughs> I volunteer as tribute. No, um, but the Lyceum Theater is a beautiful theater and it has so much history. So uh, that was amazing. Um, and I think, though, the crowning jewel of our experience, though, was meeting and getting an autograph from Nathan Lane. Yes, because we have seen him perform once before. Once Once before. Twice? We saw it once, waiting for Gatto. No, we saw him in Adam's family. You were correct, twice before. (laughs) And he doesn't do stage door. Yeah, he doesn't typically do the stage door. He doesn't like to do the kiss and cry line, um, which is totally fine. Yeah. Um, But he happened to do it this time. And he was so nice. He is such a nice person. And it was amazing. It was amazing to see him in real life and he have him sign our playbill. And oh, oh, I yeah. love that. That's in our binder. Theater is back, everybody. It's back. It's here. We're doing this. And we hope that you can join us next to us at a show very soon. I hope you'll be able to catch a production of The Nance at a theater near you sometime soon. We also want to remind you that you, you out there, can become a producer and patron of this show by getting your backstage pass. Information about our backstage pass can be found at patreon.com slash stagewhisperpod. So, until next time, hi-ho, I'm Andrew Cortez. And I'm Hope Bird. Reminding you to turn off your cell phones. Unwrap your candies and keep your mask on. And keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper.
Thank you. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Fox by Music for Wildlife. Other music on this episode provided by The Good Louds, U.S. Army Blues, Sophie Tucker, Kevin McLeod, and Billy Murray.